My name's Sam Powdrell, as you probably saw on the door, and uh, um, I've worked uh, overseas. Actually, I've been overseas my whole life. I grew up in India. Um, I've worked in missions. Missions has really been a part of my life, my whole, whole life. At the moment, I'm teaching at the University of Kentucky um, at, on the Physician Assistant Program, where I'm an associate uh, professor. And uh, um, I try and still go back out to Kenya every year if I can and do some surgery. And so um, that's just a quickie of my background. My eye experience uh, started in England and Sierra Leone. And then uh, we spent uh, 13 years in Kenya where we started the, the 10-week eye unit. Uh, a lot of you have heard of 10-week hospital. You can't hardly come to this conference without hearing something about 10-week hospital. Uh, there's a lot of people that are here from 10-week. Um, I'm going to keep running here. Um, the, we're talking about cataract uh, surgery in um, low-resource areas where there's uh, restricted, uh, limited resources. And uh, the reason um, I'm really talking about cataract is because it's, it's the number one thing that you can do to um, make a huge difference in eye care worldwide. It, and we'll see all that in a minute. Here's a guy that has cataracts. Uh, one eye, we've dilated for surgery, so that's why he's got one dilated pupil and one undilated pupil. But what do you notice right away about his pupils? Do they look like your pupils? Look at the person next to you. They look like your pupils. No. What's the, what's the difference? They're very white, aren't they? Dense, white. Yeah. And I won't make you talk first thing in the morning too much. <laughs> okay. Um, the... In many, many places, and Kenya is an example I'm using, but in much of the world, um, the blindness from cataract is about half of the blindness. And uh, that's very treatable. Glaucoma, you can prevent it. Corneal troubles, you can prevent it. What does it leave? So this is all stuff we can do something about. So cataract you can operate for. Glaucoma, you can do a surgery and stop it getting worse. Once it gets bad, there's nothing you can do for it. Uh, corneal blindness, it, once the corneas are scarred, you can't do much about it in, in, the, in a developing world situation. But you can prevent trachoma and childhood blindness and some of those things from happening. Um, in an area where there is, is trachoma, the picture looks more like this, where there's a big chunk, a lot more corneal. And how many of you know what trachoma is? One or two of you? Let me tell you. Trachoma basically is a chlamydial infection, which we normally think of as a, a sexually transmitted disease, but it's not. It's, it's a different serotype that affects the eyes. Okay? And it, uh, one infection will come, and it'll go away. It won't do anything. But repeated infection causes scarring of that upper lid. Every infection causes just a little bit more scarring, and eventually that eyelid turns into where the lashes are now scrubbing against the cornea. Think about that for a minute. What's it like when you get one hair in your eye? Can you imagine when the whole upper lid hairs, or a third of them, go in the eye? Um, and that's the situation these people are into. And it causes scarring, and then causes a... Um, the lashes to turn in. And what we do, we do a simple surgery, turn the lashes out, make an incision, advance the, the um, 
posterior layer um, so that the lashes are turned back out again. Interesting that surgery takes a few minutes. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, where there's areas like that, we have a lot of, a lot more, uh, the less percentage of cataract. Uh, typically, uh, we have, um, in most of Africa, some of, and quite a bit of Asia, there's a, there's, if we like to sort of think of a million people and then what sort of care there is for those people. Among that population, usually 1% are blind, 1% are usually uh, severely visually impaired, um, and half of those are going to be from cataract, as we said. And uh, uh, a place like Tenwick, we had about a, a million, our greater catchment area, especially for our eye unit, was about a million people. And uh, we estimated there's about 2,000 new cases of uh, cataract, for cataract surgery annually. Um, that's actually, um, I think it's 1,000 people. Most of them are bilaterally blind from cataract or severely visually impaired. And so it's 2,000 cases. We've got two eyes, so that's how that kind of works out. And there was one surgeon for it. Let me just give you a quickie on, on uh, I don't know how much the eye anatomy, anatomy you remember, but I've heard in the re 3D um, here. The iris sits on top like this. A lot of people think it's something of the cornea that you peel off. You hear people talking about peeling off the cataract. It's not the cornea. It's actually the lens underneath uh, the iris there. And I've sort of done a cutaway on that lens, and you can see there's a nucleus in the middle, and then there's a little bit of cortex, and then the outside there's actually a capsule around it. And that's kind of important when we talk about cataract surgery, because when we do the surgery, we actually take all that nucleus and that cortex out and leave just this very thin capsule. It's just microns thick. It's, it's very thin. But we leave it like this and then put the new lens inside it so that the new lens is exactly in the position where the old one was. And that's kind of how we work. So that gives you an idea of the anatomy. Um, the lens is suspended over there by the ciliary body uh, for, um, from each side, actually all the way around. It's radial all the way around and holds that lens in place. They're just little fibers. There it is again, sort of shows you the, the zonules that hold the lens and the position of the iris and the, and the cornea. So what we do is we actually, uh, I'll be talking about it later, we actually make a tunnel, cut down in here, make a tunnel across through here, um, up into right here, and then we come into the eye, we, uh, we dilate, dilate the pupil, and then we work on the lens. And that's, that's what we're doing. That's, uh, okay, as we age, the lens gets thicker and thicker. So... That up there is a, is a really young child. I think it says eight years old. And then as you go down, it gets progressively more to where L is a, what is L? I've not seen it well. Um, 74, okay. All right. So I, I think I is actually the thick one. So we've got about a 90-year-old there. So all of you are getting cataracts, all right? It's just matter of time. All right? So it's progressive through life and it's getting darker and darker. Um, story we don't want to hear. How many of you are clinicians? Any of you are going into medicine or... Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, have they taught you how to use an ophthalmoscope yet? Working on it? One of the things they rarely tell you is that... Uh, if you put your ophthalmoscope on plus four, 
plus four focuses if you take um, a four and divide it into 100, which is 100 centimeters, which is one meter, focal length of a diopter. I'm giving you some little extra physics there that was thrown in. But you divide four into your 100, so it'll focus at 25 centimeters, which is about a, about a foot, about like this, okay? So if you'll put it on plus four and actually look at your red reflex, you know, they teach you to look at your red reflex at a meter away. Well, all that tells you is it's red or it's not red, but if you'll actually focus on a plus four, you get a very nice uh, focused exam with showing the cataract and the red reflex like this. Now, this happens to be a traumatic one, but that's a nice little tidbit. So instead of just, uh, can you see whether there's a re red reflex or not? Yeah. But it also tells you about the lens, which the meter away doesn't. So if you're learning that one, that's a, that's a good tidbit. Okay. I want to talk particularly about... And I'm probably going to have to run through here, but um, and there may be <laughs> we may get behind, and if I'm going too slow, you can sort of tell me move on a bit. But um, I want to talk particularly about how do we do this where there's limited resources? You don't have people that can go get a real nice phaco surgery and in a nice uh, operating suite in a fancy office where they give you, you know. Um, cup of coffee when you come in or whatever. Actually, they wait till after because you're under anesthetic, have some anesthetic. But um, what do you ha do when you don't have all those facilities? And uh, that's the area that I've been working in in Kenya. I guess I didn't tell you one part of my story. I'm actually not an ophthalmologist. I started out as a nurse um, and actually was doing cataract surgery as a nurse. Uh, I took some training in eye care in London. And uh, then ophthalmologists spent a lot of time with me, and I had was fortunate to have a lot of them. One of them being Dave, or Dave was a helpful one. Dave, I'm just saying this because um, um, Roger knows Dave, but uh, he uh, he came out, and the Lord sent him out right at the time I was needing a preceptor uh, because I went back and did a cataract training program in Kenya. Before I did that, I became a PA. So I'm a PA that does cataract surgery, if that makes sense. And uh, Dave came out, um, uh, planned to come out for a year and a half, and it was right at the time I needed a preceptor. And the funny thing was he had never done that particular procedure. So I showed him how to do the procedure, and I said, now you need to precept me for the next year so I can do these interesting sort of scenario there. Some of the things that we run into that you want to think about most, uh, often, most ophthalmologists, they want to go uh, and sit down and start operating. They don't want to know anything about the peripheral, the logistics. It, it just needs to happen. They want to sit down and do it. If you're going to do low-cost surgery in a developing world, you've got to think about some of this stuff. For every ophthalmologist, you're going to need about uh, probably about four support people. Uh, that's not counting translators and uh, runners and all that. Um, it takes quite a lot of people. Um, people to scrub, people to do a block, people to, uh, the anesthetic block, um, uh, people to take care of them post-op. There's a lot of things that happen there, and most uh, docs don't think about that. They think about wanting somebody to take care of the instruments and sterilize them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff goes on. So um, this is some of the things you need to think about. What, who's your patient? Uh, what's our personnel? What's our physical factors? And what's the procedure I'm going to do? Um, who's my patient? One of the biggest things right away is language. When somebody's laying on the table and you put a drape over their face and then you suddenly reason, realize you can't talk to this person. They're awake. You've done a block so their eye doesn't move and it doesn't see. So you put this thing over their face. Then they, they are scared. They're, 
never been in a hospital maybe before. Um, they don't speak your language. Um, they're a little bit panicky under that drape, okay? And there's nothing, one of the most important people in my OR is somebody that can talk their language. Um, they start moving around, and I'm inside their eye with instruments, and uh, that's not a good scenario. Um, and I've had, I had one lady, she suddenly, I, fortunately I was almost at the end of surgery, but I was, do, I was actually doing an, uh, the subconjunctival injection right at the end of surgery. She sat straight up in the bed. Fortunately, I got the needle out, and, and I said, I asked the translator, why did she do that? <laughs> you know, I just about ruined the eye. And, uh, oh, I was tired of laying there. <laughs> so, translation is pretty important, um, trying to help them understand that, that you're Because a lot of times, you know, once you've anesthetized the eye, they don't feel you doing anything. They just feel you touching their, you know, their face or around. And they don't realize that you're actually inside their eye. They've got no concept of that. The story went around for a while that um, what happened in there was that I took the eye out, put it on the table, fixed it, and put it back in again. Well, that doesn't really happen like that. Um, so education is a big deal, um, especially where you've got an illiterate population. You've got to do a lot of talking beforehand. Um, and most surgeons are not into doing a lot of talking beforehand. Um, perception and ex expectation, what does this patient expect once you're done? Some of them don't even expect to see. They've just been told that this is what they need done. They don't really have a strong expectation. Um, many of them decide, because I'm old, I've become blind. Um, so a lot of things. Uh, do they have any other risk factors, like diabetes is a big one? Okay. Um, do they have any, what, what sort of financial situation are they into? Um, what follow-up do they need? You do this really nice surgery, and they've come in with their little stick, and they jump in the back of a pickup truck with um, ten other people that have got their little sticks and have just had eye surgery and are going somewhere. And I'll tell you what, one of those sticks is going to get in an eye that you've just operated on, and you need to ask that stuff uh, before you get there. Seasonal considerations. I found that uh, our best surgery was between um, about um, somewhere between May and November. Um, because what happened, um, they, they had crops and they had food at that time. Come, come November, it starts getting dry. By January, they're starting to get short on food. Um, it's really dry. And then school fees hit in January. And then their crop doesn't come in till about March or April. And so they've got no income. And they don't have food and they're scratching around. They're not going to come for cataract surgery at that time. Uh, they're just trying to get their kids through school. So um, those are all considerations. Okay, so what's your patient look like? And a lot of mine came in looking like this, led by somebody being pulled along with a stick because they couldn't see blind. All right, some things to think about um, with surgery. Are you going to do static or are you going to do mobile? Um, basically, the static clinic is where you bring the patient to you and you stay there and you operate. That's a comfortable situation, um, and it works well, but more than likely a lot of your people are further away than will come or can come or, or whatever. And so um, either you're going to transport them in to your facility or you need to take a team and go out to them. And a lot of people don't like the discomfort of going out to an area where you don't know what you're dealing with, you don't know if you have electricity, you don't know if you have clean water, um, and those sorts of things. Um, so 
You need to figure that one out. And then screening. Screening is very important. Uh, the last thing you want to do is bring a bunch of people in that don't, aren't ready for surgery yet, don't need surgery yet, or have come in. Um, I showed up to one clinic uh, that supposedly had been screened. There was 30 people there. Um, Ten of them were inoperably blind. I mean, completely blind. There was, and there was nothing I could do. It was, it was things like glaucoma, end-stage stuff. So ten of them had to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. Another ten had been operated on and had been botched. Okay? And I, I operated on a number of those and was able to fix some of them. Some of them I said, there's nothing I can do to fix this. It's, it's, it's too far. And then ten of them were, were straight cataracts. Now, that's, that's a sad situation, but that's what you get. So screening is very important. You don't want to operate people that... Um, you know, don't have a possibility of seeing again. Otherwise, you leave a very bad uh, rapport in the community. What surgery are you going to do? Um, the kind of surgery they do here for cataracts uh, is, is, has very limited use in much of the developing world, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Um, the, if you're going to... I've been involved in a lot of mobile surgery because... The whole western end of Kenya, basically, I had a catchment area of about a, probably a million people, and actually my larger area was probably more than that, where there was no eye surgeon, and I was the only eye surgeon for them. And so you need to think about how, how big that area, and you can't stay at a static clinic and, and hope to do anything for blindness. So I traveled a lot uh, to, and took my team, and we got it down to a science of going into an area, setting up in a church or a school or a... Um, um, you know, a clean shop or a community hall or somewhere and set up and do our surgeries and that's, that's what we did. This usually isn't an operating facility that is, um, there isn't usually an operating facility that's there. If it's a clinic, it's rarely optimal. So you don't know what kind of water you're getting. It's probably rainwater out of the tank. Um, and you, so you scrub your hands nicely with this betadine, do it all right, and then you rinse your hands with this stuff. So kind of interesting. But it's rarely optimal. Um, you may not have electricity. You may be cooking your own food on charcoal. I mean, there's just a lot of things that can be variable. Transport. You need to think about how you're going to get there. A lot of the place uh, where some of the worst Pathology, worst cataracts are, are in areas that you need four-wheel drive to get to and can be very difficult. Location, uh, clean water supply, you need electricity, you need a place to operate, and, and usually it means sweeping the place out, scrubbing it down before you can get there and, and do it, and then you need some place to eat. And food and lodging, I, I had patients that hadn't had water for two days, and you go take a lunch break. Um, that's tough. And, uh, and uh, we had people that sometimes would steal the water out of our car because they hadn't had any water. I mean, can you imagine not having a drink of water for two days? That's, and that's some of our patients. In fact, it was enough that I would sometimes have difficulty with my surgery, and I, I, couldn't re- I didn't understand why the tissue didn't, planes didn't dissect well. And I realized the tissue's di- dehydrated, so I started trying to... Um, bring water along or whatever and give our patients a big drink before uh, a couple of hours before I operated and it helped. It was an interesting thing. I've never seen that written up. This is what we had built in Kenya to, to transport patients to our facility 
or we could take our equipment and go in it um, to somewhere, and that made a big difference in our work. Practical considerations. Um, you want to, um, if you're going to go transport out, you've got this uh, facility with a nice operating room at your hospital. Um, so anytime you transport out, if you don't have two surgeons, that place stays empty. So you want to think about that. It may be more feasible to bring people to you uh, in some sort of a vehicle rather than, um, than leaving your static unit empty while you go gallivanting around doing mobile surgery. It's a cost issue. A lot of times the uh, other hospital staff thought my staff were just out on vacation. We were traveling all over the country, which was far from the truth because we often worked until way late in the night just trying to get through the surgeries that we had. Um, funding for um, mobile work is, is tough when you're at a general hospital. Usually eye care is not seen as a priority in a general hospital. If you've got people dying, they're not worried about an elective surgery. <laughs> okay. um, the fact is that in a place like Africa, if somebody gets, becomes blind, they are going to lose their, um, they're actually going to die within five years, the average is. So it is actually, a, believe it or not, a life-threatening problem. So, um, but it's usually a low priority, and it's often hard to work with the funding and so on with the management, and that's something you have to work with. Staff training. Um, there are relatively few places to send people to get eye training, and you may have to do it yourself. Um, and then I've already mentioned the integration into the general, general hospital. One of the big keys that I found to um, successful mobile surgery, um, and even at the static unit, is advertising. And if I go back two or three, do you see the side of that bus? That was one of the best advertising ever, anywhere. They'd say, oh, you're from Tenwick Eye Unit. I've got this eye problem. And I'd be sitting driving the car, truck. They'd say, I've got this eye problem. And it, it was a lot of fun. But I realized after a little bit, I didn't think about it when we built the bus. But we were advertising all over Kenya. It was one of the best advertising tools. You're driving down the road, and thousands of people in a, over a period of a month are seeing your vehicle. And they're realizing there's a static unit there. There's somebody that can help me with eye care. And that was uh, a pretty good motivator. Okay, um, where do you advertise? Um, you need to, I, used to, I did little flyers, but word of mouth in many of these communities is great. And so the easiest thing to do is you go talk to local leaders. Local leaders have what they call harambes, at least they call, that in, they call it that in Kenya, where they all meet together, um, they bring community people in, and if you can get a local leader to tell the people at the harambe, They'll all take it home. The other place is the school. School kids love to take a piece of information like that home. So you tell the teachers, can you tell your kids? So here's, you know, 800 kids go home and tell their community um, about, about what's happening. Town centers put up some posters. Public transport's another good one. I'd find out which uh, little... Uh, pickups or uh, trucks are going to that community, and I'd give the driver uh, several flyers. Say, here, can you pass these out on your on your pickup truck? And they would they would pass them out. 
Churches are another good one, and often church people will be a real support to you. And I try, uh, with us being in missions and mission work and wanting to have a spiritual impact, I found that many times uh, working with the local churches was just invaluable. It It was a huge help. And I always tried to involve them and usually involve a pastor that could come and, and help us with spiritual care along with our eye care. And that's usually a, a good resource. If you have radio available, uh, many of these countries, if there's nothing else, they'll have a radio somewhere in the community, and that's, that's a good one as well. I plan to, I usually send out the advertising about three weeks ahead. If it's more than that, they forget about it. If it's less than that, they don't have time to get their money together. And so we do make a little charge uh, for our cataract surgery. It's heavily subsidized, but we do have, a, have some charge, and that's so that there is some level of ownership uh, for the program. Um, and sometimes, uh, usually, I, I would go into, especially if it's a very um, needy area, I would go in and negotiate with community leaders. So what's, what's fair here? Um, as far as pricing. The surgery, if you want to know about what it is, uh, sort of the run of the mill over a period of time we found that it's about $100 a surgery. That's about when you figure out um, time, equipment, the lenses, uh, all medicines, everything. That's about what it actually comes out to. Um, the, um, we don't charge anything like that for it. And you know about what they're charging here now for cataract surgery? Yeah, probably $2,000, and then you often have hospital on top of that. So, you know, you're looking at a lot of money. So, um, And they can't do it for 100 bucks here either. But <laughs> All right. So negotiate with the community. I'll talk about the GOAT index in just a second. Um, sometimes you can – the glasses, uh, if you're making your own glasses, sometimes you can make a little bit of profit on the glasses make, or make profit on the glasses – because a reading population is probably an educated population, which also has a better income. So we try and uh, make some profit on the glasses so that we can subsidize the cataract surgery and so on. And that's another way of helping with that. Um, Don't make your service that meets the upper class. They can go into Nairobi or wherever else to get surgery. Aim at the low class. And then if you want to have a track that you, you know, give them a private room and do something else and charge them more for the surgery. You can do that uh, for your upper middle class, but you need to aim your, you're not going to prevent blindness if you aim at your middle upper class. You're going to make money, okay? And that's not really the point of a mission hospital. The point of a mission hospital is trying to help the people, and blindness is a big deal if it's 1% of the population and another 1% that are handicapped. Um, Okay, um, another thing that helps a lot, you've got to think about where, once we do the surgery, where are we going to get medications from, where are we going to get glasses. More and more medications are becoming available um, at a fairly reasonable cost, but we still found that um, the cheapest thing was to make our own drops. And uh, I used to take the injection vials from the general side of the hospital, from the ampicillin and you know, penicillin, whatever, uh, have the little rubber stopper in it and a little glass bottle. Um, we don't have so many of those in the States, but there's still some around. Um, I would take those. We would take the metal ring off, and I had somebody that would do that, and we got a system where we take thousands of these things off and take the rubber stopper out. We wash them, sterilize them, and then we make our own eye drops, filter the stuff, put it in the bottle, put the cap back on, 
and we had a special for pet cap. And you guys will enjoy this. I made uh, a capper. It had two valve springs out of a car in it to, to, so the handle would spring back up and it made a wonderful capper. And it had these little things that capped right on that bottle. It was a cap designed for those and had a little pipette so that they could break the seal. And then they had their little pipette to put the drops in the eyes. And so I had, I used to charge the same price for all of them. Well, those bottles come in three sizes. There's a, there's a five millimeter, a 7.5 and a 10. Um, and so what I would do, my expensive medications, I'd put in the small one. My cheap ones, I'd put in the large bottle. And so I ch- charged the same price for everybody. And, and uh, that way you could fill the bottle up. If you put an expensive med and, and put five cc's in a 10 cc bottle, they'd come back and say, my bottle's not full. But if you use the small bottle, it was always full. And so that way you differentiated your price cost, which is an interesting way to do it. So, um, The goat index. Uh, this is a, a way that uh, Christoph, Christian Blind Mission came up with uh, figuring out how to determine uh, uh, what you ought to charge for cataract surgery. And basically it's this. You go into the community and you find out how much it costs for a goat. Okay. Um, in, uh, out in Pocot, where these guys were, it was about 300 shillings. In Nairobi, it was about 3,500 shillings, 3,500. So, and it worked, out, it worked out really well. That was about what you needed to be charging for your cataract surgery at those different places. That was a reasonable rate to charge. And so that's what we kind of worked with. Um, and we used that to sort of support our local staff. Um, and much, most of our equipment medications, a lot of the staff, all of that was donated, but to keep some of the basic running costs, uh, that's what we use that for. But here they are negotiating over a goat. This was an interesting story. This guy, the guy that was having the cataract surgery done, he came in, he said, oh, I don't have anything. Well, community people told me, they said, he's got a lot. He's got a lot of cattle and a lot of goats. So I said, okay, just bring a goat then if you don't have any cash on me. So, so um, this was the negotiation over that one. I think he went and got his littlest goat and brought it along. Um, interesting thing, I was way up in Pocot, and this guy had a bracelet that was about this big around, about this wide, ivory. It had, come, it, it had taken right off an ivory tusk and, and, and made. So probably got it from a poacher. This guy was into all kinds of interesting stuff. So I noticed that when I was <laughs> um, talking to him and doing his exam. I usually was not that harsh with patients, but that, that was a, an interesting case. Um, interesting to note the little stool he's sitting on. Uh, you, you have to be an elder in the community to sit on one of those stools, and you can't let your wife sit on it. That's only for the men. <laughs> all right. They also use it as a pillow. Okay, logistics. Uh, good packing, think about weight, um, think about instrument care, how you're going to sterilize it. Uh, I used a boiler. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, that's not really adequate. You should be autoclaving. That's probably true. But in the situation, it's either no surgery, they stay blind, or you do what you've got. And I, when I can, I use a, an autoclave. Think about power supply. What are you going to run your, um, the, the light on your microscope out, off of? And I had a microscope. Some of the microscopes now, they're using LED lights. It's a great way to go. Scan Optics in um, Australia does a nice line of low-cost microscopes that are somewhere around 25 pounds. That's about what they weigh. And you can, you can tighten them onto a table or a bed and uh, um, 
operate with them. They're great scopes, and they're using LED lights. Um, I've run those off car battery. I've run it off solar. I've run it off electricity. It does 110, 220, a very versatile microscope. And so if anybody is setting up a system, that's one of the things. Zeiss is now making one that's similar. It's about 25 pounds, really light, has Zeiss optics, which is really nice. Um, and so those are some things to think about the microscope. Um, all of the others, transportation, water, equipment, we've talked about a lot of those. Um, if you don't bring the light, right, right light source, you may be into this situation. We ended up trying to uh, operate. I had a light on my headlight, but my scrub had to use a lamp, and that wasn't, we operated too late and got into trouble. The, do you like our IV pole, too? That was kind of an interesting one as well. Um, but that was our basic setup and operating system. Um, no, we were actually had a, that's, uh, sorry, we actually had a little mash table that we used to travel with, a little foldable mash table, and we'd open that up, and uh, that's what we used, and they're wonderful. That's, uh, okay. Um, I think I've probably covered a lot of this. Um, I probably have. Let's just keep going here. One of the things you sometimes run into is you may have um, people that come in, local provider that comes in periodically, um, and that uh, um, they don't do real, real good surgery, and you sometimes have troubles with that. I'm going to keep going here. Let me get to the extraction here. So here's, there's a couple of ways um, of doing it, and I'm terribly running out of time here. I'm sorry. Um, I want to give you some time for some questions. Uh, intracap surgery um, is very cheap, but the visual resu results are not good, and you have a lot more problems with it. That's where you take the whole lens. The extra cap is where, like I was talking, you leave the capsule of the lens, take the contents, um, and you put another lens inside. And that's the procedure that I do. We now call it manual, uh, small incision cataract surgery. Okay? And, uh, um, and we call it extra capsular. It is an extra capsular. And then here in the States, they do FACO, which takes an expensive machine, a lot of specialized fluid, a lot of disposable tubing, uh, a lot of viscoelastic, which is expensive. Do you get the picture? Okay. It doesn't work in Africa. And for the very dense cataracts, they don't even cut it that well. And it causes, you have to use a lot of FACO energy. It causes more um, damage to the, to the inside of the eye, and they have more hazy corneas. Uh, next morning. A lot of reasons not to use FACO in this situation. It's coming. One day we're going to be using FACO in, in, in Africa. It'll be neat when the day comes, but it's not there yet. And so that's what we're, why we're going this route. Uh, anesthetic, it's done under local. Uh, that's, we do an injection right there. And if you're not medical, I'll go on to the next slide. How's that? <laughs> All right. Um, here's our sort of setup scrub. You can see a very small set of instruments. There's the scan optics microscope. It's a pretty basic setup. I carry it in the back of a trailer um, and go. You want to use simple instruments. The more techno you get, the more stuff, the harder it is to mo take it mobile, and even at your local place. Um, we reduce the pressure in the eye after we've done the anesthetic. This is a little super pinky. It's a toy that you can buy and, and uh, a toy bowl. And they're spongy and they work well. You put a piece of elastic through the middle of it and it makes a great thing to reduce the pressure in your eye. Um, 
Small incision cataract surgery, basically like, like here, this. This is a dense cataract. Um, you can see I'm just starting to open the conjunctiva down at the bottom here. Um, and then my incision doesn't go around this way. It actually goes this way, all right? And then we tunnel up into here and up into here and then actually enter the eye in clear cornea. So we can go split the, split the sclera, half thickness thick. Um, go up in and then we go into the eye like that so we're actually making a big this wide tunnel in there and it's a self-sealing incision as soon as the eye gets some pressure back in it that incision shuts and you don't need a suture in it and so that's what we're doing so this is working through that incision you can kind of see how it works this is where I go in but I'm actually entering the eye right there and uh, now I'm cutting the capsule just with a basic syringe needle it's a simple system um, I've won't do the, the whole system here, but then I take just uh, inject fluid underneath that capsule and it loosens up that cortex and nucleus. And then I keep injecting fluid behind, behind that lens, put a bit of pressure on the wound so it opens up and that nucleus just floats out. It's a, it's a pretty slick system. There it is coming right out. That's the nucleus coming out through the wound. There's the nucleus. And you'll see the white still inside there. That's the cortex. Yeah, I meant to say, if any of you aren't medical and you want to shut your eyes for a few minutes, you can. <laughs> okay. Uh, pretty, pretty gross. Not, not everybody's into eyes. Okay. You see the red reflex there? So all that cortex has been now cleaned out. We do an irrigation aspiration system, clean it out, and it's, it's there. And then you see there's a line across the middle. That's where we cut the top of the lens. And I actually slide the new lens underneath that and then I cut and tear that top out and leave the bottom of the, of the capsule there. You're talking about working in a two millimeter space here, two or three millimeter space, it's not much space. There's the lens actually going in. You see it's got these little clip, uh, clips on it, little spring fishing line clips on it. Uh, as you put it in, uh, that goes in on, into that capsule and then we rotate it and it goes into place and then you have something that looks like this. And you can actually see the little hole in the lens where I rotate, that I rotate it with and here's that capsule after I've torn it out. Um, here's another piece of it. And that lens is sitting right there where the old lens was. And, it, and they get real good vision from this. You see the wound? There's no stitch in it. Is the eye full? It is. Okay. And we're done. That's, that's the end of the surgery. Uh, a lot of people used, uh, they used to take the whole lens. And there's still a lot of people around that have that. And for that, um, or if you have complications, you can put an anterior chamber lens in, and this is one that goes actually on top of the iris. And for this, I just do a little um, incision right in the cornea, I slide it in, and put one figure eight stitch in it. You can see the figure eight stitch, and that um, closes the cornea, and they can see again. Don't have to have those. Th have you seen people with the very thick glasses after cataract surgery? You probably don't see it here much anymore, but um, that replaces that, and you can fix them with that. Okay. Things you need to do, good screening, good selection, so good surgery, and then make sure you refract afterwards. There's nothing worse than doing surgery and leaving them not corrected properly, so you need a facility for doing that. Uh, many don't come because either the service isn't available, or if you have one or two bad outcomes, you're going to ruin that community. Okay? Then nobody else is going to want surgery. Um, cost has to be something that's affordable for them. They have to be able to get there. 
Uh, they have to have somebody that can bring them, um, and a lot of family are involved with other family or their farms or whatever, and a lot of people are just afraid of what they're getting into. So a couple of my patients, this was post-op. That was after his bandage came off. He was pretty happy. <laughs> Here's a girl, 20 years old. She had dense cataracts from diabetes. And so they gave her insulin and said, here, you need to do this. Well, she couldn't see the insulin syringe. Um, but we were able to do cataract surgery. This is just a um, little uh, illustration. In the retina, the blind spot, which is where the disc is over there, is not very far from the central vision. It's only 15 degrees away if you, as, you, as you look. And, you know, it's a little bit like we think. Sometimes we think we're seeing clearly and we're on the blind spot. And in our world, um, the, it doesn't hear the blind and the poor. We don't hear about these. And as Christians um, and as Christian healthcare givers, we need to think about those things. And we need to be that world's conscience um, and be aware of these and try and help. So that's what you can do. Either be involved, uh, getting training, going to school, um, either be involved giving, go on short-term mission trips where you can help a surgeon or so on. Remember I said there's four people they need for every surgeon? You can be one of those four. It doesn't take long to uh, learn how to pass the instruments or get a patient on the bed the right way or, you know, transport them from the ward. You can do those things. And so there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, so that's what you need to be involved in. And I'm sorry, I have really run on my time here. But remember the blind spot. It's not very far off the central vision. Make sure you're looking at the central vision, not the blind spot. Okay? All right, any questions? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the, it depends on the country. Kenya recognizes the PA as a mid-level, and uh, I'm, I'm trained as, a, as an ophthalmic clinical officer with cataract training. So I've, there's three levels there, and uh, I have all three levels. Um, they, they don't recognize a nurse practitioner in Kenya as a mid-level, so, you know, th that one doesn't work. Um, it depends on the place. Now, some places, um, they'll only let a doctor do the surgery. Um, Kenya had a training program for mid-level, so... Um, it depends very much on the country. Malawi started, they're big on it. Tanzania is big on mid-levels. Um, it depends very much on your, on your location. Um, India has a lot of surgeons. Uh, they've got a lot of areas of need, as in many developing countries. The surgeons are in the cities, and most of the blind are in the country area and can't pay, pay the fees that they need to for that. So those are all things to think about. But uh, South America... Uh, it's, it's a mixed bag, South America. Um, so China has millions of ophthalmologists, but they don't operate. <laughs> so there's a terrible amount of cataracts there. Um, They're all medical ophthalmologists. So that's one of the situations you get into. But, yeah. The one I took in Kenya, um, I, they required us to do 100 procedures um, before we were qualified and successfully. Um, and it takes, to be very honest, you need to do at least 100 before you're even in the ballpark. Um, and it's probably um, 
before you're really consistent, you're looking at two, three hundred, probably at least. Um, and, the, and it's like anything. It's like riding a bike or driving a car or anything else. The more you do, the better you get at it. It's a, it's a learned skill. Um, and you, you get better as you go. The, the one in Kenya is um, it's a year program. You spend about three months at the national hospital and then seven months with a preceptor where, um, you know, you're, where you're operating. And so they expect you to get that 100 cases in that seven months. Um, so, and it depends on the site. You know, not all the sites have a, a good operating load. You can't um, – I trained several students before I left, and you can't give them every case. It's got to be a straightforward case, um, and you've really got to hold their hand until they get – good at it because, I mean, you're in a three-millimeter space inside the eye, so it's, you know, you can't just turn them loose. So it takes time. Yeah. Any others? Okay. You all are free to go. I've run over, but uh, thank you very much for your attention, and um, hope it wasn't too dull for first thing in the morning. <laughs> kept you awake. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. This off, so not, okay. I want to ask. So I'm going into internal medicine. I'm forty minutes. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. You may have discussed this at the beginning. Is it possible for someone like me to get trained to do? Absolutely. How, Absolutely. how does one do it? Um, the the best thing is um, it's pretty much on an individual.